The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. You can find more from Dr. DeRoshi at www.jasonderoshi.com. Leaders and students and friends, it's really a joy to be with you today. As Dr. Freyu shared, I love Ethiopia. My whole family loves Ethiopia. Our youngest three children are from this beautiful country, and I continue to, to return in order to help the church in Ethiopia train its leaders, evangelize the lost, reach the unreached, and care for the poorest of the poor. And it's a joy for me to be with you. My desire is that you might become men and women of the Word, who know how to handle all of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation for the glory of Christ and for the good of His people. Whether you're from Evangelical Theological College or Ethiopian Graduate School of Theology or McKenna Jesus Seminary, We need to be seeking to raise up a certain type of minister. One who treasures truth and prizes purity. One who's saddened at sin and intent on integrity. Who recognizes that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. One who trusts the trustworthy one. Who celebrates the servant Savior. Who believes in a big God and that this word has no errors in it. One who is not ashamed to be called a Christian, who's willing to take radical risk for Christ's glory. One who is certain that the all-sovereign, all-satisfying one will be faithful to sustain even through suffering. Even unto death and beyond into glory. I hope that you are being shaped into those kind of men, those kind of women. These are dark and trying days, both for the believer and the non-believer alike. Many of you have tasted deep loss due to COVID. Added to this, in this country, there's great civil unrest plaguing this land with fears, worries. In view of such trials and in view of the false gospel that is being preached by many, not only in Ethiopia, but throughout Africa, South America, and in the United States. In view of these tensions, Dr. Freyu and I thought it wise that I would speak on this topic, promises. The promises of God. We are believers in this room, living under the new covenant, but what do we do with the promises in the Old Testament? Are those also for us? In 2 Corinthians 1.20, when Paul says, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus... Does that include the Old Testament ones that were given under a different covenant? 
and to a different people in a different time? What are the promises that God desires for us to hold on to in a faithful way? That's the focus of my topic today. So to that end, Dr. Frey, you already prayed, but I I want to pray one more time, so join me as we ask our God for help. Blessed are you, O Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit, Creator, King, faithful provider forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand, O God, are power and might, and you alone raise up and tear down. You're the one who gives rain for the farmer. You're the one who gives bread for the table. You give life and breath and everything else. The ministry of the churches and the schools here in Otis are yours. My small part this morning in this great body of believers and in your great work among all the nations is yours. And so we thank you, O God. We praise your glorious name. I ask that you'd be honored today. Be pleased to manifest your spirit in power through my teaching. All for the glory of the Son and for the joy of these brothers and sisters, I pray. Amen. So this first lecture is focused on how does the Christian relate to Old Testament promises? The challenge and the need for Christians to claim Old Testament promises. The challenge and the need. The Apostle Peter, in 2 Peter 1.4, says God has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them, by claiming them, by holding on to them, that through these promises we may partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world brought about by evil desire. So sin is making promises. saying that it'll be better if you engage in this activity and we need to fight the desires that rise in the soul when sin promises to us, fight it with greater, more pure desires that are awakened in our soul by God's promises. We become more like God by holding on to His promises. That's what Peter said. Listen to Paul, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7.1. Through the promises, we can become more holy. Faith in God's promises creates hope or dread And what we hope or dread for tomorrow can change who we are today. Consider how the Bible talks.
If your challenge is anxiety, how is it that the promises of God can help fight anxiety and make us more holy? What does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things, food and clothing, will be added unto you. But you've got to seek first His kingdom. So believing the promise of God that He'll provide for us is what motivates us to seek His kingdom and His righteousness. Or how about covetousness? How do we nurture a contented spirit? Not craving things more and more and more, but just resting in all that God has provided for us. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you believe that promise today? If you believe it, then you can hold fast to it. And all of a sudden, my craving for more and more is quieted because Jesus has said He'll be with you. I'll provide all of your needs according to my riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What if you're struggling with bitterness? Someone has truly hurt you or hurt someone you love. How do we fight the sin of bitterness through the promises of God? Well, we claim, we believe that God has truly said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Therefore, we can love our enemies, trusting that He will indeed deal with all those who have harmed us. We hold on to the promise of God, and it helps us fight bitterness. How about... Because you continue to fail and struggle with sin, you struggle with fear of condemnation. How can God be 100% for me? I've got to do and be better for Him to really love me. Not resting in the fact that Jesus is already 100% for us. And that the only sin that you and I can beat, conquer, is sin that's already been forgiven at the cross. How do we fight fear of condemnation? We believe the fact that God has said there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, He was raised. And now He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and for me right now. And therefore, we need not fear condemnation. Fear of failure. I don't know if I can do it. I've messed up so many times. And then all of a sudden you recall, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The promises of God matter in our pursuit of holiness. But not only that, sorry, I forget what I put on here. The promises are important in supplying hope amidst suffering. The psalmist said, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promises give me life.
When the tears flow, we call to mind that we have a God who heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. When the darkness lingers, we believe in the steadfast love of the Lord, that it never ceases, that His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. When fear assaults, we remember that God says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We believe that promise and we hold on to it. When worry grips the soul and you feel alone, we recall Yahweh's pledge. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. And finally, when death's shadow draws near, our soul finds rest, knowing that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Even when I walk through the valley of deepest darkness, through the very shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me. Promises of God. All these passages that I've mentioned are rich with hope. And yet all the promises that I just mentioned related to suffering, all of those promises come from the Old Testament, from Jesus' Bible, the initial three-fourths of the Christian Scripture. I've spoken them as if they're promises for you and promises for me. But they're all from the Old Testament. Is that justified? Are those promises that were given to Adam and Noah, the patriarchs and the nation of Israel for us? And if so, how? Now before answering that question, I want us to consider some of the different kinds of promises that we find in the Bible. And to do that, I want to focus in on the promises that God gave the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because those promises indeed influence all the rest, almost all of the rest of the promises in the Scriptures. God's first explicit promise in the Bible clarifies the reason why he permitted mankind to eat from the tree in the garden. Every tree except the tree of the knowledge pertaining to good and evil. This is the first promise that we find in the Bible. When you eat of it, you will surely, what? Die. God made that promise to our first parents. And it was a warning. And what you dread tomorrow should change who you are today. Had Adam and Eve indeed dreaded, had a fear of death, I don't want God to kill me, they would not have sinned. But instead, they didn't get afraid of God. And they entered into sin. 
But even prior to punishing them, God made a declaration to the serpent. He said another promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, a single male descendant of the woman, he will bruise your head, but you will bruise his heel. The very one who is a murderer from the beginning, God declares to him, I will raise up a seed who will put a death blow upon you, even though his triumph will only come through great tribulation. You will strike his heel, but he will strike your head. From this point forward, redemptive history discloses a progressive hope in this coming deliverer, whom we know as Jesus. Now, while there's earlier foreshadows, Scripture next anticipates that the curse that was brought on all the world due to sin will be overcome the next time it it unpacks God's overcoming of that curse is with the patriarchs. And it gives four different kinds of promises. Progeny, that's seed or offspring. Property, land. Blessing and curse and divine presence. Progeny. God promises that he'll grow the patriarchs into a great nation. We know that nation as Israel. He'll multiply their offspring like the stars. He'll raise up kings from their midst who will exert influence over the nations. In time, Abraham's fatherhood would expand from being the father of one nation to a father of a host of nations. And Genesis itself tells us that Abraham will become a father of many nations only when that single seed, that male offspring, rises and possesses the gate of his enemies. And through that single offspring, all the families of the earth are blessed. Abraham is the father of one nation during the Old Covenant. He becomes the father of many nations during the New Covenant. He's the father of one nation in the land. Even Ruth, sorry, even Rahab the Canaanite, Ruth the Moabite, Uriah the Hittite, All of them were incorporated into the one nation Israel. But Abraham became the father of a multitude of nations. In the coming of Christ, he became an adopted father. Number two, property. The Lord committed not only to give the patriarchs the land of Canaan as their central state with their broader kingdom reaching from the river Euphrates all the way to the, great, to the uh, river of Egypt, He also promised that a royal deliverer would expand the kingdom turf to the rest of the world. 
The single offspring would possess the gate of his enemies. What does that suggest? That when that single male deliverer comes, the enemy gate will be overcome. That by its nature implies that when this individual comes, God's kingdom turf will expand. Not only that, to Isaac in Genesis 26 3 and 4, God says to Isaac, look, I will give your offspring, well, he says, sojourn in the land, singular, I will give your offspring the lands, plural. And indeed, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The very offspring that he spoke of, the single male offspring in Genesis 22, 17 and 18, through whom all the nations are blessed, in his day the turf will move from land to lands. And it's reached all the way to Kansas City, Missouri. Blessing and curse. God promised to bless Abraham and his offspring through Sarah. Not only that, the Lord would bless those who bless the patriarch, and he would curse the one who curses the patriarch. Ultimately, Yahweh would use one of Abraham's single male offspring to overcome God's enemies and to bless all the nations of the earth. Oilaita, Hydea, Sadama. That's where my three children come from in the south. Before the throne of God, Revelation 5, Revelation 7, people from every tongue, every language, every nation, every tribe will be worshiping the Son of God. The blessing of God having overcome the curse. And you and I are a part of that. Divine presence. From the beginning, Scripture associates God's blessing with humanity's ability. Scripture associates God's blessing with humanity's ability to represent God rightly in the world. God's favor alone provides a context for flourishing. Curse brings only tragedy. In such a context, Yahweh affirmed, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. Over and over and over again. God was with Joseph when he went down to Egypt and was thrust into Potiphar's house. God was with Joseph on the other side of his prison. The promise of divine presence. Genesis 12. Go to the land and I will bless you and make you a great nation and make your name great. Be a blessing, Abraham, so that I may bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse with the ultimate result that through you all the families of the earth will count themselves blessed. That Blessing permeates all the Scripture. 
Genesis to Revelation. God fulfills some of his promises in a single event, like the coming of a specific offspring, whereas others he realizes progressively over time, like the claiming of the land or the lands, and his promise to bless and reach all the nations. Most of the patriarchal promises are initially and partially fulfilled in the Mosaic Covenant, nationhood in the promised land with various blessings to neighboring nations. But all the promises of God are only ultimately and completely fulfilled in Jesus and through the new covenant. God's overcoming the curse with universal blessing and a global kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. If all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, should we as Christians claim Old Testament promises given to specific individuals in a different time as us and under different covenants? One of the little children's songs that they sing in America goes this way. Every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line, all the blessings of His love divine, every promise in the book is mine, except the curses. (laughs) Should we have our kids sing those words? Now, prosperity preachers would say, yes, every promise is mine. Claim it for today. By faith, Jesus has secured every blessing, health and wealth, spiritual, physical well-being. Consider Moses' words in Deuteronomy 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, if you faithfully obey, here will be the results. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl, blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Are these blessings from Deuteronomy something that we in Christ should be claiming today? Health and wealth teachers are right to point to Galatians chapter 3, where Paul says, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. Galatians 3, 9. But what they fail to recognize, putting that verse in context, is that the blessings that Paul is talking about that were Abraham's directly related to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, ultimately in the offspring of promise alone. Look at how it's worded. Galatians 3, 8. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declared beforehand, in you shall all the nations be blessed. 
So what does it mean to be blessed? It means that we're right with God. You remember how the writer of Hebrews talks about Abraham? He died not having received all that was promised to him. He was blessed and yet died in faith, still longing for more, unable to enjoy it all now. Could it be that God would have us die in faith as well, still awaiting all that He has promised? The New Testament's application of Old Testament promises to Christians. Let's consider how the New Testament uses Old Testament promises. I'm going to say more about prosperity preachers in my second lecture. For my larger purpose today is not specifically to confront the prosperity gospel, but to help all of us as believers understand how to appropriate, claim, delight in, rest in God's promises and all that He has secured for us in Jesus. In responding to prosperity teachers or in grasping for ourselves how Old Testament promises relate to believers, we need to know something. It's not enough to say, well, we're a part of the new covenant. So you shouldn't be going back there to those old covenant promises. We can't say that. Because the New Testament apostles very often reach back to those very old covenant promises and say, church, they are for you. Consider Romans 12, 19. Never avenge yourselves, Christians, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written. What does that for it is written mean? It means before there was ever a New Testament, Paul's Bible was the Old Testament. And what God said back there in the initial three-fourths of our Scripture matters for us. It is written, a promise. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Live by it, Paul says. We gain power to love our enemies in the present because we can rest assured that God will indeed judge rightly in the future. Do you believe that Old Testament promise? How about Hebrews 13, 5 and 6? This gets a little more interesting. Keep yourself free from the love of money. Prosperity is not your goal, says the writer of Hebrews. Keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Where's that from? That's Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. And the writer of Hebrews reaches back there to that Old Testament text and claims it. The New Testament author sees the Old Testament Scripture as lastingly relevant for the church. Another text that he blends is Psalm 118, verse 6. The psalmist proclaims Godward trust during a time of distress. That's the same context the writer of Hebrews is addressing his church in, a time of distress. Some of you have been they've claimed all your worldly goods, says the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10. They've taken it all away. And yet you rest in Him since you know that you have a better possession and an abiding one. As for the promise in Joshua 1, the author of Hebrews claims that we should not look to money for security because God has promised to always be with us. But what's intriguing is that he cites the pledge that Yahweh gave specifically to Joshua. It wasn't even made to the whole people of Israel. It was made to Joshua. I will never leave you, Josh. I will never forsake you. And yet the writer of Hebrews reaches back and applies it to the whole Christian church. How does he do that? Somehow we can legitimately use the promise God gave to Joshua to help us battle covetousness in our own lives. As Christians, we need to have a framework for how to appropriate that kind of a promise and yet do it in a faithful way. I'm going to come back to that promise in lecture two. But what I want us to give now, over the next 30 minutes, is four principles that govern how I believe we as Christians should be thinking about the promises of God. Four foundational principles. I've noted the challenge and the necessity for Christians to claim Old Testament promises. The New Testament authors are doing just that. But I don't believe they're reaching back there and just claiming them as if Jesus has never come. They have a framework for thinking about the promises of God that is Christ-centered. And as we think about Christ, who doesn't only come once, He will come again. And thinking about the, the relationship of living in light of the future coming into the middle of history in the coming of Jesus... So that everything is already ours, truly ours now. Jesus has perfectly fulfilled all things already for us. And yet some of what he seeks to let us enjoy fully will not be fully enjoyed until he comes again. 
Let us consider four principles for New Covenant believers relating to Old Covenant promises. Number one, Christians benefit from Old Testament promises only through Christ. This is foundational for how I think the New Testament authors are thinking about everything in relation to the Old Testament. Our first passage comes from Galatians 3, wherein Paul confronts claims that for Gentiles to become full inheritors of what? Old Testament promises. You want to become an heir according to promise? You want to become a true child of Abraham so that all those promises are yours? That's what Galatians 3 is considering. Yet there were some in his day that were saying, you want to enjoy the promises of Abraham? Well, you've got to obey the Mosaic law. You've got to be circumcised. In contrast, the apostle asserts that the old covenant law served as a guardian until Christ came. But now the age of faith has come, so we're no longer under the guardian. Galatians 3, 24 and 25. Furthermore, Paul claims that only identifying with Christ Jesus by faith secures the inheritance for both Jews and Gentiles. When Paul in Galatians 4 says that we have been adopted, he's not just talking about Gentiles, he's talking about Jews. There is no Jew who is a true Jew, a true child of God, unless they are adopted by faith into Christ. They might have Jewish blood, but God does not look at them as his child if they have not surrendered to Jesus, the only hope of eternal life. All must receive adoption. So in his argument, Paul fluctuates freely between the singular promise of inheritance that includes God's Spirit and the plural promises of offspring, land, and blessing. So with texts like Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 22.18 in mind, Paul writes this. Here it is. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons and daughters of Abraham. And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. A blessing that he then says, in verse 14, comes through Jesus. Here's what it said in Genesis 22. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now many scholars, and I'm not sure if it's this way in, for example, your NIV. In our English NIV, 
I wish the translators wouldn't have gone this way. They take that singular pronoun, his, and make it plural, their. The term seed or offspring is always singular grammatically. But throughout the Old Testament, by including singular or plural adjectives or singular or plural pronouns, the authors can identify whether the seed is singular or plural. So, for example, in Genesis 17, verse 8, we read this, And I will give to you, Abraham, and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. It's plural. The pronoun is plural in order to identify that the offspring is plural. But in Genesis 22, the pronoun is singular in order to identify that the offspring is singular. So what does Paul argue? Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to his offsprings, that is plural, but and to his offspring, that is singular, namely Christ. So what's Paul's argument here? Now that the offspring has come, he says in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, look at the bold, so Christ is the offspring to whom the promises were made. If you are Christ, then you become heirs. You become Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You get to be an inheritor of all that God promised Abraham, but only through Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Notice up here in Galatians 2, that little, prone, that little preposition, in your offspring. That's the only way blessing comes in your offspring becomes in Christ, in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. You have to be incorporated into Jesus by faith, and all of a sudden, you become an heir. This is how I understand it working. Christians benefit from Old Testament promises only through Christ. So what does God do? God makes promises to Abraham and to his seed. Christ is the seed. Faith unites you and me to Christ. Union with Christ makes you and I seed with him. And by that, we become heirs of the promises. If you are in Jesus, and only if you are in Jesus, 
Do these promises become yours? So the first principle is Christians benefit from Old Testament promises only through Christ. Principle two. All Old Testament curses become New Covenant curses. You remember those long lists of curses in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Well, in Deuteronomy 30, in the very passage where God says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. He says, and all the curses that are written in this book. See that? In the day of heart circumcision, the Lord your God will put all the curses that are written in this book on your foes and those who persecute you. Paul in Romans 2 says you and I are living in the day when hearts get when God does a surgery on our hearts. He removes that outer shell that identifies us with the world so that he can penetrate and work in us. We are living in the day of heart circumcision. The new covenant is the fulfillment of this promise. And because of that, in the new covenant day, all the curses that you read about in Deuteronomy, Moses says, would be put on the very enemies of God. That is, the enemies of the church, the enemies of Christianity, will experience the very curses of God that we read about in Deuteronomy. The old covenant curses become new covenant curses. Remember in the Abrahamic covenant, what did it say? Him who dishonors you, I will curse. Be a blessing, Abraham, so that through you, so that those who bless you, I will bless. But the one who curses you, I will curse. That's how it was Like the curses of the Abrahamic covenant are curses on the enemies of Abraham. And I'm saying that the curses in the new covenant are not curses that you and I are fearing. They're the curses that our king has promised to bring on our enemies. And we can rest confident in those promises. That God will indeed make all things right. Take away every tear whether he punishes it at the cross, Jesus standing against that one who is once your enemy and makes them your friend by Jesus taking all that penalty, or whether rather than God's wrath pouring out on the substitute, God pours his wrath out on the sinner. God will bring his curses down. The New Testament displays So here's that old covenant curse. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip 
For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. That's the text that Paul cites in Romans 12. That's the text that the writer of Hebrews cites in chapter 10. Vengeance is mine. What's Paul doing? He's resting, believing that old covenant curses become new covenant curses. But not against the people of God, but against the enemies of God. The New Testament displays new covenant curses as warnings against apostasy and against all who oppose God and his people. Those in Christ will not experience curse in a punitive way, in a way that is decisively for eternal punishment. Why? Because Jesus has bore that curse on our behalf. Christ bears upon himself God's curse against all believers. But that stated, it doesn't mean that God won't discipline us. Hebrews 12 makes that absolutely clear. And it uses the exact same language of discipline that we find in Leviticus 26. Exact same language. And in Leviticus 26, the purpose of the curses, five times it's mentioned. I will pour out upon you all of my curses. And if you don't repent, then I will escalate my curse seven times. And if you don't repent, then I'll bring it seven times more. And if you don't repent... What's the point of the curses? The disciplining hand of God is designed to move us to repentance. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that if you share in Christ, you will indeed hold firmly to the end the confidence you had at the beginning. Hebrews 3.14 If you truly share in Christ, you'll persevere. What does that mean? That every time we experience the disciplining hand of God, ultimately, we will repent. We'll come back to our Father. Christians still experience God's fatherly discipline. But no level of earthly discipline or consequence will ever call into question our eternal security. If we have been justified by faith, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? Romans 5, 9. New covenant curses serve as a means of grace. If you and I experience the disciplining hand of God, they are merely a means of grace. They are not a definitive final end. Think about the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Many of them were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. And what does it say? Many of them had become sick. Many of them have even fallen asleep, meaning they had already died. They experienced the disciplining hand of God. But 1 Corinthians 11 also tells us that it was so that they might be saved. These were true brothers and sisters that God called home. New covenant curses serve as a means of grace to the elect in order to generate within them reverent fear of God leading to greater holiness. So I say, old covenant curses become new covenant curses. That's the second foundational principle. Number three, as part of the new covenant, Christians inherit the old covenant's original 
and restoration blessings. Now, what I mean, you'll remember in Deuteronomy, God said, if you obey, I'll bless you. If you don't obey, curse. And in the history of Israel, they experienced initial blessing in the land, then they experienced curse by exile, and then the promise all the way back to Moses was that on the other side of exile, there would be restoration, blessing. And what I'm saying here is that as part of the new covenant, Christians inherit the old covenant's original blessings and the restoration blessings. Let me argue for that. In 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul says these words. I've already read them this morning. Since we have these promises, beloved Christians in Corinth, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We have these promises. What promises was he talking about? Certainly, it's only promises that Jesus made to his disciples after he rose from the dead, right? No, 2 Corinthians 6 ends by listing a whole host of Old Testament promises. And so we want to go in and consider which Old Testament promises does he mention. And as we're going to see, he lists not only restoration blessings, which are focused on New Covenant, he also is going to list Old Covenant promises, original blessings. Like Peter, through his precious and very great promises, we partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world brought about by evil desire. 2, Corinthians, 2 Peter 1.4 Like Peter, Paul saw God's promises as central to our pursuit of God-likeness. So, what does Paul share with us? Here's 2 Corinthians 6, just before he says, we have these promises, Christians. What does he say? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What temple is he talking about? The temple of the church. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? We are the temple of the living God. As God said, now he's going to quote the Old Testament, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now where does he get these, this promise from? He gets it from two different places. One is Ezekiel 37. You'll remember that valley of dry bones. In Ezekiel 20, God said, repeating Leviticus 18.5, Israel, if you obey the law, you will live. And yet they rebelled against me in the wilderness. Israel, if you obey the law, you will live. And they turned from me again in the wilderness. Israel, if you obey the law, you will live. The old covenant did not result in Israel's life. It resulted in their death. 
And the writer of Ezekiel saw it. The law promised, if you obey, you will live. And yet, Ezekiel 37 says, all of Israel became like an army dead in a field whose bones got very dry due to the judgment of God. But on the other side of their death, God had promised resurrection. And in the midst of that resurrection, he promises that he'll raise up the people, he'll put his spirit in them, and he'll give them, put over them, one that he names David. This isn't the original David, this is the promised new David. And they will obey God because their hearts will be changed. And then he makes this promise in Ezekiel 37, 27. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. My dwelling place will be with them. He just told us that his spirit will rest upon them. It's as if the people who were once dead have now been made alive and wherever they go, they're like movable temples because the Spirit of God is resting on them just like He rested on the Ark of the Covenant. Wherever the people go, God is. It's as if from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, when God, Acts 1-8, pours His Spirit out upon His people and they become His witnesses, it's not just that the church is growing, the temple is growing. The temple is expanding from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The whole temple of God is filling the earth with the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. And wherever people encounter you, they encounter the very temple of the living God. Why? Because God promised, I will make my dwelling among them. And the church becomes the temple. People don't have to walk to Jerusalem now to meet God. No, the Jerusalem that is below is related to the Old Covenant. The Jerusalem that is above, Paul says in Galatians 4, that Jerusalem is our mother. Our citizenship is with God, and we as the church now enjoy the presence of God, and the temple of God has filled the entire earth. So now, people don't have to journey to Jerusalem to meet God's presence. They can meet you at the donut maker right on the, on the street. The presence of God comes to them. And it's fulfillment of the restoration blessing that God promised through Ezekiel. And Paul quotes it. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. I will make my dwelling among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's Ezekiel 37, 27. But notice what Paul also says. I will make my dwelling with them, and I will walk among them. That's not in Ezekiel 37. To get that phrase, we've actually got to reach all the way back to Leviticus 26. And in Leviticus 26, it's not the part of the restoration blessings. It's part of the original blessings that God gave Israel. Obey and live. If you obey, you already have the temple, but if you obey, then I will, here's Moses, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, I will make my dwelling among you. You, and I, among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk 
among you. And you will be, sorry, among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. God promised Israel, if you will obey me perfectly, there will be an added escalation given to what you already enjoy in the temple. And Israel in the Old Covenant never experienced it, never enjoyed it. Why? Because they didn't obey. God called Israel, do this and you will live. They didn't do it, so they died. It's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 says the Old Covenant bore a ministry of condemnation that contrasts with the New Covenant ministry of righteousness. But Jesus comes representing Israel, embodying in his being as king of Israel, standing as their representative, and he perfectly obeys. And the implication is that in his perfect obedience, he secures the life that the law promised for all who are in him by faith. But what I see Paul doing here is he's reaching back not only to restoration promises, he's reaching through them all the way back to Old Covenant promises and saying, Christian church, because of Jesus' perfect obedience, he has secured for you every restoration blessing of the Old Covenant and every original blessing of the Old Covenant. So two conclusions follow from what I believe Paul is doing here with Ezekiel 37 and Leviticus 26. The two conclusions are this. The restoration blessings of the Old Covenant include all the original blessings, but in escalation and without the chance of loss. The way Ezekiel's New Covenant promise reasserts the original Old Covenant blessings from Leviticus 26 supports this claim. Number two, through Christ, the original Old Covenant blessings and the restoration blessings have direct bearing on Christians. Paul appears to draw together both these texts, Leviticus 26, Ezekiel 37, suggesting not only their close tie in the Old Testament, but also that along with the New Covenant restoration blessings, the original Old Covenant blessings do indeed relate to believers. So I summarize, as part of the New Covenant, Christians inherit the Old Covenant's original restoration blessings. Original and restoration blessings. Now so far, this sounds like, wow, this is really supporting the prosperity teaching. Just claim all the promises. Jesus won all of them from before you. Everyone is yes in Him. Now we come to my fourth principle. Through the Spirit... Christ already, Christians already enjoy all blessings of their inheritance, but will enjoy them fully only when Christ returns. Let me see if I can build this case. Ephesians 1, verse 3 and 13 and 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Messiah, who has blessed us in Messiah 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, in Christ, in the offspring, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, what happened? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Prosperity preachers don't want to suggest we have an inheritance that we haven't yet received. They want to say, you have the inheritance Jesus wanted for you, and it's all for you now. And God would say, that's missing something significant. What's significant is that Jesus, in his body, in order to enjoy his resurrection and see himself exalted once again as king over all, what did he have to do? He had to carry his cross. There was no crown without the crucifixion. And we as the body of Christ, in order to identify with Christ in His suffering, are called to carry our cross daily as we await our own resurrection and our own exaltation. Now, Paul says, in Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing Most scholars believe that these spiritual blessings refer to all the blessings that the Spirit of Christ secures for the saints. And then he goes on to talk about the types of things he's referring to, like election, adoption to sonship, redemption, forgiveness, and sealing, and all that we will enjoy completely when we gain our full inheritance. All of these blessings fulfill the Old Testament's eschatological hopes. They're hopes of the future associated with new covenant restoration. Therefore, while all of God's promises find their yes in Christ already, we enjoy some fully only in the future. He has put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You'll remember 1 Peter, we have a living hope through the resurrection of the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for us. Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then he cites an Old Covenant blessing text. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him speak peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Psalm 34 holds out a vision of future blessing. For whom? The righteous ones, plural, who pursue good and not evil. And Peter here 
reaches back into that Psalm 34 and says what the psalmist was saying is for us today. There's a sowing and reaping principle that he speaks of. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him do this. Keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. A sowing and reaping principle, retribution. It's the same principle that stands behind the blessings and curses of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. This future orientation is clear in the fact that the psalmist knew that in the present many afflictions would come to God's followers, and yet he was confident that the Lord hears and delivers them all out of troubles. The psalmist believed in sowing and reaping, yet he was also confident that his believers that he's talking to were going to experience the deepest levels of suffering. Yet God would be a refuge in the midst of them. But the psalmist also says, in contrast to the plural righteous ones, God will condemn those who hate the righteous one, singular. Which I believe is shorthand for the Messianic king in Psalm 34, 21. So Peter too clearly recognized that obedient Christians suffer. Just read 2 Peter. It's loaded with suffering. 1 Peter, loaded with suffering. And he too remained certain that in time God would restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So at one level, the blessing that is sought in 1 Peter 3.9 is something that God followers already enjoy in light of its connection to the living hope. It's a living hope. Meaning it's alive already. A hope that you and I are enjoying It's not just desire for the future. Somehow that future desire awakens delight in God in the present. Thus, Peter says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed already. But notice what the blessing is related to. If you're insulted, how do you like that blessing? From this perspective, Peter stresses that we experience numerous present expressions of divine favor as we pursue right conduct by faith and in God's power. But nevertheless, while we truly enjoy all God's blessings now, we will only fully enjoy them in the future. Truly now, fully later. Truly now, fully later. In this overlap of the ages, our battle with sin is still evident, but God has freed believers so that no longer does sin enslave or condemn. So too, we still battle brokenness and decay. I've got a dear Ethiopian brother. Right now, he's he's back in the States translating this book into Amharic so that the churches here can be blessed by it. His wife... His wife's sister died of COVID here in Addis. Then, brokenhearted, this woman's daughter who died of COVID committed suicide here in Addis out of a broken heart for losing her mom. That is real. 
world where you and I are living. It's real pain. Real brokenness. Don't buy the talk that suffering is not for believers. We're going to talk more about this in lecture two. Suffering is for believers. And we have to face that suffering with amazing hope by the power of the Spirit, believing that God has purchased for us, that He who has all authority in heaven and on earth will indeed be 100% for us. Don't believe that God's purposes can be thwarted. Don't believe when the cancer comes or when the car accident happens or when you lose your job that God has somehow stepped off His throne. He was on the throne before the cancer hit and He's on the throne now and it's with that hope that you as ministers of the Word of God enter into the hospital room. Giving people hope that the blessing of God in Jesus has indeed been secured. The inheritance has already been ours. It is truly ours now. But it will fully be enjoyed when every tear has been passed away. When every enemy has been overcome. And it will happen. Christians have a living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you and for me. Our inheritance relates to our faith resulting in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ and to the unfading crown of glory that we long to receive. This is the future orientation in 1 Peter 3.14 which reads, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Christians benefit from Old Testament promises only through Christ. All Old Covenant curses become New Covenant curses. As part of the New Covenant, Christians inherit the Old Covenant's original and restoration blessings. And through the Spirit, some blessings of the Christian's inheritance are already enjoyed fully now. But all will be enjoyed fully later. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. For more information about Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, we invite you to visit www.mbts.edu. For more writings, sermons, and lectures from Dr. DeRoshi, please visit www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.